Hey everybody, this is Martin and you're listening to Healing Together, a podcast that connects you to me and some of my amazing friends, where we hope that our stories will bring you comfort, inspiration and healing. I want to give you a behind the scenes view of people's lives, both the ordinary and extraordinary. And I think that you will realize that most often moving through struggle relies on finding a way to shine a light on some of the darkest corners of your heart. And through this, we can build strength and therefore remain open, kind and grateful. Hey everyone, welcome to your bonus episode. Today I'm going to be exploring attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD as it's often known as and the reason for wanting to do this episode is that I myself have been diagnosed with a form of ADHD which is a DD and I will explain the difference between those two shortly But I thought it was really important to give you a bit of personal insight into my different brain and what that can mean. And I want to help you understand this particular um, neurodiversity because you will probably have experienced some people around you talking about this more and more dare I say it, it's quite fashionable at the moment, Um, said with tongue slightly in cheek. Um, Maybe how I should more accurately word that is that there is being a lot more light shone on this particular uh, neurodiversity. And I think it's not unrelated to the fact that we have a lot of devices asking for our attention, which may in turn mean that we lack attention in certain important areas. And while we can all be keen to pathologize certain aspects of our lives, and sometimes that's very helpful, uh, often it... um, once a light is shone on something, it can really swing the pendulum in in a particular direction. And I think that we are definitely seeing that pendulum move towards the uh, the other side of um, people actually noticing those who struggle in the ways that uh, ADHD describes. So um, I thought it was pertinent to to talk about this today. And so. In order to help you better understand ADHD, I would like to talk you through the definition of, uh, of ADD, ADHD. And what we tend to find is that there are three main kinds of ADHD. And so the first is primarily inattentive ADHD. And this is the type of ADHD that I was diagnosed with when I was uh, 20, I think, when I was at university. And for this particular type of ADHD, people are most likely to have symptoms like forgetfulness, poor focus, organisation can be an issue, as well as, would you believe it, listening skills. 
we'll come on to that later on <laughs> because my job is to listen so how can I not be very good at that you might be asking well a, a very key aspect of any of the types of ADHD is inconsistency and uh, that might as well be my middle name um, so yeah inattentive ADHD uh, or ADD as it was previously known often resembles a mood disorder in adults while as it can be seen as a more spacey, apathetic behaviour in children, uh, particularly in girls. So this is the first kind. And then we have another type, which is hyperactive, impulsive ADHD. And this subtype encompasses many of ADHD's stereotypical traits, so often boys get diagnosed with this and it can be described as bouncing off the walls uh, at school, interrupting in class and fidgeting almost constantly. In reality, only a small portion of children and adults meet the symptom criteria for this particular type of ADHD. And then we have the third type, which is a combination of the previous two types. <clears throat> So in order to be diagnosed with ADHD, you usually uh, would visit your GP who would then refer you to a specialist to, uh, to carry out the various diagnostic tests that would then result in a diagnosis. And there is an interesting point around the helpfulness of a diagnosis. And I think um, this uh, warrants a bit of discussion here that... Uh, certainly when I was doing my training to become a counsellor, we did a, an assignment on the usefulness of diagnoses and also the um, lack of usefulness. And uh, certainly my opinion on this is that if you feel that it helps you be seen, be heard and helps you remove some of the judgment around some of the things that happen for you that aren't necessarily within your control. And by, you know, bringing awareness to that and uh, hopefully removing some of the, the judgment or the shame around the particular aspects of any diagnosis, then I think it can be really helpful. Where we can run into difficulties is when this particular diagnosis can become a label, a way of understanding all of who you are. And I think that can be limiting in the same way that any label can be limiting. Perhaps viewing diagnoses as a way of describing part of who you are and how you are in the world but realising that they do not define you and that you are far more expansive than any diagnosis could encompass perhaps is a more helpful way to view uh, said diagnosis or, or set of diagnoses. And it's certainly the way in which I approached my own diagnosis of ADD, as I said before, when, uh, when I was 20. So I'm going to talk to you now about how I, um, I, I what, what happened for me leading up to my diagnosis and, and how I dealt with the diagnosis. And um, I hope that by going into that detail with you today that you can see that it doesn't have to be negative, you know, with anything that um, people struggle with. 
if we can approach it with openness, kindness, um, and some hard work, then and, and also being grateful uh, for for the gifts that we are given through these unique ways of being, then we can actually use what could hold us back. You know, these air quotes limitations actually become opportunities to develop some wonderful skills in terms of how to be with yourself. And I can proudly say that I have demonstrated that and certainly turned my diagnosis into a sort of... um, a kind of a post-traumatic growth, if you like, and I'll, I'll come on to post-traumatic, post-traumatic, <laughs> post-traumatic growth theory um, after I've told you my story. So anyway, I better get on with that. So when I was younger, um, I was a bit of a daydreamer in school. Um, I certainly didn't really exhibit any of the hyperactivity. Um, aspect of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and and therefore uh, it's why the the ADD um, label probably better described uh, some of the ways that I behaved but one of the things that I think really shaped my reactions to um, to the people around me was when I was at school and I, I was clever at school. I, I was generally in the top sets and I, um, I achieved uh, really good grades in, in most of my subjects um, all the way through school, really. And there was a short time where I uh went through a naughty phase um but i think that was just part of my personality making its way through as well once um once shit got real at my gcse's i buckled down and i did a good job but um one of the things that was consistent for me during school was this copying down from uh what used to be a chalk or then uh became a whiteboard <laughs> um, god that's taking me back um, we're talking like 30 years. Uh, and um, so, you know, I would be, I would know that, for example, um, maths, which is one of my strongest subjects, that I had had, had done the maths correctly and well and, and, and even um, elegantly in, in certain instances. And then when I would get my results back from, you know, said test or whatever, um, I would usually find that I'd maybe get 80 percent and uh, some harsh comments from my teachers, something along the lines of you're a very clever boy and yet you make stupid mistakes, which spoils your good work. And I can even feel it right now, this kind of sinking in the pit of my stomach that I was trying really hard. I was working really hard. I knew that I had the capability and that feeling of the rug being swept from underneath me and being, you know, chastised for getting something wrong that I had no idea that I had got wrong. And it pisses me off now, actually, to think that, you know, why weren't other questions asked at that time? Um, and, you know, this sense of getting something wrong when I didn't even know what I was doing wrong um, is something that I struggle with right to this day, um, kind of a fear of being found out. And it was so damaging to me on uh, on a psychological level. And, you know, Amram and I talk a lot. Um, that's my husband, Amram. If anybody um, hasn't uh, listened to any of the previous podcasts, go back to episode two if you want to get to know him. 
Uh, he'll be on episode six as well, actually. Um, you know, so much of the time I end up in tears when I just didn't know that I'd got it wrong. Um, and I really have to work hard on centering myself with breath and, and realizing that this is a reaction from a time in my life when, you know, this this was a reality and it's not now, you know, I'm allowed to get things wrong. Goodness, I must. Um, and the, you know, the, the behaviors that develop later on in my life around perfectionism and uh, a real fear of, of, of going into particular activities where I wouldn't be able to guarantee that I would do it well and, and get it right um, was very limiting for me. Um, and I, I um, yeah, I, I kind of had to attack that head on and and work with some of these reactions to be in a better place. But it's in me, it's in my cells right now. And, and that was really damaging to me at that time. Um, but anyway, it was just the way that it was. You know, I was um, very clever and lacking in common sense. That was the, uh, the description of me. Um, and it led to many, you know, uh, humorous um events in my life. Um, one such was when I went to Oxford University for an interview to, um, to be on, on their maths degree. And it was a five-day interview and it was fucking awful. My God, they sat me in a room with somebody who didn't speak English and I had to have a conversation about maths. I mean, it was just awful. And I was an absolute fish out of water. Um, anyway, so I, I came away from that interview after a few days um, and, uh, on traveling back home, the first time that I'd been on a train. So obviously lots of anxiety around that. Um, and so I stood at Carlisle train station and it was when you had the, uh, the windows that would pull down and you would reach out and open the door. Well, I never knew that nobody told me. Um, so I could see my dad waiting, um, at, on the, uh, Oh, goodness, I've forgotten the name of it um, at the station um, on the platform. And uh, I was just standing there and he was looking at me and he was like, you're going to get out. And I was like, well, I'm waiting for the, the, you know, the door to open. I don't, I don't know how to do it. And um, and then the train set off and I ended up at 11 o'clock at night. After coming back from an interview at Oxford University, one of the best universities in this country, for an interview for a maths degree, not being able to simply step off a train. And uh, off I went to Motherwell, just south of Glasgow. Arrived there about one o'clock and came back on a sleeper train. Um, it was awful. Uh, it really was awful. And as with many of the aspects of dealing with my um my different brain, um, my lack of common sense, even though I was clever, um, me developing a side of my personality uh, to defend against how awful that felt at times was humor and being funny and seeing the funny side of things. And, you know, as I mentioned in many of the podcasts, it's an and both thing, you know, it's not, it, it, you know, I was diagnosed with that and it, it hurt me but I developed humor, you know, it was, and I developed humor. There's positives and negatives to, to this way of coping. Um, and so when I went to university, um, I feel like I lost two years and this is a gap in my life that I am going to have to revisit. I, I actually think I was incredibly anxious during that time. I know I developed this, um, 
this sensation in my throat, which I've, I've spoken to a lot of people about, which is almost like this, uh, like a blockage in my throat and it's hard to swallow and it feels like there's a hairball in my throat. Um, it, it's too much to go into right now in terms of what that can mean on an energetic and kind of physical manifestation of, of an energetic block due to, um, uh, trauma really. Um, but I think that's what was going on and, and, and my lack of memory during that time, I think I, I think I switched off. I think I was in a kind of a relative dissociation, um, during that time, maybe low level. Um, and yeah, of course it won't have been helped by the copious amounts of alcohol that I was drinking, but I, I don't think that was necessarily the case. Uh, as to why I don't have memory for that time. And I certainly have a recurring dream that takes me back to that time. And it feels like I'm stuck there in some way. Um, so, you know, this is this is evidence of the fact that I am by no means a, um, a fully fixed and healed individual. There's, you know, there's layers that I've, I've got to work through. And, and this one, I think, is, is making its way back through, actually. Um, anyway, the reason I tell you that is in my third year of university, it was when I was diagnosed and we get back to the whole, uh, copying down issue as to where my, um, uh, main symptom was, was making itself known. And this was when I worked at Pete's Express with some lovely friends that I made there and still have in my life. And uh, it was such such a great time. I was quite relaxed and uh, in in being who I was there. And uh, my friend Bev was um, was working there at that time and was supervisor. And she would always close off my bill analysis, which was basically a list of all the bills that you'd done on the night. And you would copy down from the till to the bill analysis sheet, and then you would add it all up and make sure everything um, tallied. And uh, mine was always wrong. Oh, and we would laugh and joke and she would get frustrated at me. And of course, the, the old, you know, it was doing a maths degree and can't even copy down bills correctly. And I was like, you know what? This isn't right. You know, this this isn't right. So I looked into dyslexia and some of the um, associated kind of psychological aspects and it kind of fit. So I went for a, um, a test at university and I was given all kinds of like comprehension type stuff and um, this uh, they threw a ball and I couldn't catch it. So that would explain probably why I wasn't so great at sport because spatial, well, lack of spatial awareness was definitely a, a symptom that they were testing for there. And I was given the diagnosis of ADD then. So um, that, that first category of ADHD, um, the inattentive um, subtype. And I was offered Ritalin at the time, which is an amphetamine-based uh, medication to help with some of the overwhelm that can cause some of these symptoms to uh, be exacerbated and just to help give a bit more space between stimulus whatever, you know, the stimuli was that may have caused my symptoms to step in to try and protect me. So the dissociation, the um, kind of lack of attention on other things, because I was probably focusing so much on one particular thing, uh, hence that perfectionism and kind of obsessive nature that I can have. And um, and I said to them, I said, you know what, actually, I, I don't really want to change who I am. I, I quite like who I am. And 
this is a part of me, part of my personality. And now I know what are the, the kind of the potential symptoms that can arise. I think I will just take the time to get to know my my ADD and, and how it shows up in my life and take actions to um, mitigate some of that or to help myself out in other ways. So maybe the symptoms don't need to um, to show up as much. And uh, I'm quite proud of myself for doing that because I think at that point it was where I really developed um, the ability to heal myself um, and maybe not so much in the healthiest way because it was at this point that I started developing kind of an obsessive nature routines. Um, certainly the perfectionism came in um, really strongly at that point, really strongly. And uh, it, it, it meant that I became very ashamed of what um, kind of the, the, the inconsistency part of, of, of how my brain works, that it isn't possible for me to be on and high performing 100% of the time, partly because I'm a human, um, but also because of the very nature of being human, that we have ups and downs and for me, when I have my downs or overwhelm or whatever that might might constitute, that's when my symptoms uh, ramp up the most. And I think that my shame and therefore concealing of them gave them power. And so I, I would find very much that there was a there was a very up and down nature in my own private world. And uh, yeah, it took a lot of energy to manage all of that, really. Um but anyway, I presented a very, uh, a very perfect image of myself out to the world and um, just lied to myself that there was anything else going on. So, of course, that lack of integration caused me some psychological issues and they showed up uh, predominantly in my relationship at the time. And it was then that I went for counselling and that, that's kind of how my counselling journey started. And... I also discovered yoga um, intermittently, actually, not in the, in the same level that I did um, once I started my counselling training back in 2013. Um, but that gave me this insight into my perfectionism. Um, I remember my first yoga teacher would call me a grizzly bear yogi. That was Amram just popping his head through the door there. I've been in here for two hours now uh, editing and recording this podcast. So um, there you go. See, my <laughs> my obsessive tendencies tend to uh, tend to uh, come into play. Um, and uh, he very usefully highlights that in uh, in much gentler ways these days. Um, so that that actually takes me on nicely to how being in a relationship with him uh, helped me realize that I needed to address my ADD in some different ways. Um, but I'll just go back to where I was there. So yeah, so, so yoga and, uh, my, um, uh, building awareness of my perfectionism, which was revealed to me through how I was on the mat in yoga, um, started to, to tell me, you know, that maybe there was some value in these other sides of me, um, but yeah, I, I, I held on to that perfectionism, uh, for quite a while after then. Um, but yeah, it all got challenged in my counseling training and 
Again, just that awful feeling of having the rug pulled from underneath me if anybody was to see that I was not necessarily all that I was comfortable presenting to the world. It's just kind of ruling my life. Um, and there is a, a wonderful quote, which I, um, I'm not sure who it's by, but it's that if you don't own the story, then the story owns you. And it very much felt that way. Um, Amram talked to you in episode two about my need to have everything in straight lines and that my house, in his opinion, looked like a, a doctor's surgery, very clinical. It didn't. It was lovely. There was dark blue walls and white carpets and this lovely kind of gold wallpaper. It was such a, it was lovely. Um, but anyway, it very much wasn't um, a, a place that I would have allowed my imperfections to show up. So, you know, the several drawers uh, that were messy and full of shit um, that I just shoved in there so that I could maintain this outwardly perfect life. Um, you know, and I feel in a way I was doing not only myself, but maybe the people around me a disservice, you know, not not being aware of the reality of who I am and focusing on just particular parts um, it, it kind of was, was me lacking responsibility in that genuineness aspect, but it was just really hard, you know, to show those parts of myself. And anyway, so when Amram and I got together, um, after me living on my own for five years and, you know, my ways had become very ingrained by then and, uh, very much just the, the norm for me, um, I found it very frustrating that he would point out my inconsistencies, that he would note when my mood wasn't what I thought it was. Uh, he can read energy and more of that to come in in the next episode. So he would be able to tell when things were off kilter with me. And uh, he um, he would point that out. And I felt like I was being criticized, that he was seeing me in ways that I was very uncomfortable seeing myself. And it all came to a head one day when I was sitting at our dining room table in the old house and I was doing some work and Amram kind of shook me to awareness just by shouting um, from over the other side of the room on the sofa. And he said, you've just been staring into space while I've been talking to you there. And and I said, uh, you weren't talking to me. <laughs> I had no recollection of anything that he'd said. Um, I think I was actually responding to him, um, with words, but just kind of out of, you know, just totally out of awareness. Um, and, and I remember getting quite upset because what I was reading at the time, uh, through working with a client with ADHD, I was actually reading, um, some of the, the Scattered Minds book by Dr. Gabor Mate, which I will share the link to because anybody that it has anyone in their life with uh, suspected ADHD or even yourself, then please, please, please read it. It's, it's a wonderful way to view the unique uh, gifts of people whose brains work in that way and to understand how that developed. So I, I kind of had my, my head in that at the time and clearly something was triggered in me and, and obviously the dissociation, the kind of the drifting off stepped in to protect me from from the level of feeling that 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 was uh that was highlighting and it was like being diagnosed all over again but this time with a real awareness of the fact that this is a problem this shows up and 
you know, it was definitely causing problems in my relationship. Um, this attention lacking was was really difficult for Amram to be around and he didn't understand it and therefore created his own meaning out of it which comes from his own conditioning which is kind of a lack of importance to others and it was like dynamite for us you know it was definitely one of the biggest um, issues that, that we faced in our early days together and of course going into the pandemic and being locked down together my symptoms were massively exacerbated and I um yeah so I really started to dig in and uh one of the the most important uh, aspects of me coming to terms with and moving through how my uh, ADD affects me in life was this idea of radical self-acceptance and you know I'm well placed for being accepting uh, of whatever comes my way of course when you know due to my job it, uh, acceptance is is, is is kind of the cornerstone of the work really uh, obviously you know we've got to practice what we preach and that's usually the hardest thing when it comes to emotional stuff so um, but I worked really hard on it and uh, talked about it more opened up about it more and, uh, you know, being a yoga teacher is a great way to practice that self-acceptance. Uh, you know, so I say things in class like um, when I make a mistake, I'm open about that mistake. When I get something wrong, I actively try to challenge the perfectionism in me by opening up and, and, and recognizing that I am an imperfect person. And, and because of that, uh, I am more valuable to, to the world around me. Uh, and, and this podcast is another way for me to to practice that. And uh, there were many other different ways in which I I practiced that radical self-acceptance. And one of the hardest ways is requiring it from others who struggle with the inconsistencies. You know, so, for example, when I am tired, I am really clumsy. Um, I can fall over my own feet. Um I put things in the most random places. So you will often find keys in the washing machine type uh, inconsistencies. Um, I, you know, the, 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 the listening, um, you know, isn't just affected in the sense that I can zone out, but actually my levels of hearing are inconsistent as well. So sometimes loud noises are incredibly difficult for me. Um, I might hear them loudly. They're not loud to the other person in the room. But then sometimes I really can't hear anything either. Um, and being deaf in, well, three quarters deaf in one ear doesn't help with that. Um, but yeah, sometimes I like things to be turned up because I can't hear them. Sometimes I need them to be turned down because I, I you know, I can have like actual shocks from the level of noise. Um, other senses can be affected as well. Uh so yeah, I can be a bit of a nightmare <laughs> to live with. And I say that not just from Amram's point of view, but for me too. Um, so you would think, well, you know, if, if Martin's like this, how on earth does he do a job that involves focusing on other people and listening to them? But I think this is where the last 20 years of my perfectionism comes into play. Because one thing that attention deficit 
disorder, ADD, ADHD, whatever, um, maybe doesn't, I think, make as clear is that actually the lack of attention is because there is too much attention on maybe one thing and uh, or, you know, a, a few things, let's say. And that's often, you know, in dealing with the reactions that that come up as, as a consequence of the things that happen in life. And so I think that, you know, my my perfectionism and my obsessiveness, I can actually apply that to my clients when they when they're sitting in front of me. I am very focused on what's going on for that person. And actually, it's a big relief for me because I get to leave, you know, the rest of my world behind and I can be there wholly, maybe kind of 200 percent, if you like, you know, Um I mean, I realize 200% doesn't exist, but I'm, I'm just talking about like a, a very intense focus on this person and what's going on for them. And that makes me a good listener. Um, but because of that intense focus in my work, outside of work, I need to rebound. And so I often talk about how, and this isn't so much the case now because I've got more balance, but I'll often talk about how my clients get the best of me. And because of that, everyone else kind of gets the dregs and you know it's it, I say quite often you know I can be a shit friend because I might not respond to those messages it feels overwhelming for me to um outside of work to to be kind of as as good <laughs> as I am in work um and so you know bringing that into balance has been a big part of my work and Amram has been instrumental in that, in helping me realize the importance of developing uh, a similar enthusiasm and passion and focus for my life that isn't my work. Um, and, you know, him and, and my wider family and friends and our home all being, you know, as important, maybe even more important than than some aspects of my work so that I can bring the best of me to more parts of my life. Um, and try to kind of balance out these inconsistencies. So, yeah, so that's that's my story with um, with ADHD, ADD. And I will say that more recently I have um, considered uh, considered taking medication, and this is a very you know open um, this is a very open sharing with you because. I sometimes get tired, you know, um, not not just on a physical level, but I work really hard on being okay. And it takes a lot, you know, the proverbial swan on the surface, you know, there's a lot of paddling going on underneath. Uh, all of my practices help me enormously, breath work particularly, uh, releasing tension, through whatever other forms of um, physical movement that I that I engage in, um, meditation and being able to rely on external support that you know from kind of non-physical realms um, really help me find a sense of calm and and centeredness uh, with what's happening for me. Um, but yeah, okay, it would be nice to have a bit of a hand sometimes with this stuff <laughs> and uh, when I hear of the great things that medication can help people with you know in in terms of increasing that space between stimulus and response uh, 
there is a strong appeal. Um, so I, you know, certainly um, would encourage anybody who is exploring ADHD in, in their lives, whether that's directly or with loved ones, to be open about the benefits of medication because they can act like a really important uh, prop, you know, like in yoga where we use the wall or we use blocks or chairs to help us uh, find what it what it's like to be in particular postures and get a sense of what it's like. You know, medication can help you get a sense of what it's like to live in the world as somebody that doesn't have this particular neurodiversity and um, neurodivergence, I think the term is, um, and, uh, and, 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 and be able to maybe develop some different ways of being with that brain um, and, and, and look to, to reshape it in, in some ways that are helpful because um, it is hard doing it without the props, you know, <laughs> it really is. Um, and so, yeah, I, um, I want to move on to the final part of this session, which is talking about, as I, as I do in all of these podcasts, shining a light on the, um, the so-called darkness of the, um, experience of, of, of living with ADHD and, I want to uh, describe a Japanese art form to you, and uh, many people will have heard of this. And again, I will um, I will pop a link on the um, the podcast page to to this uh, particular art form, which is called kintsugi, uh, K I N T S U G I, and it uses the idea of broken pottery being put back together with gold and that actually because it's broken it um, once it's put back together and held back together um, actually becomes something far more beautiful than it was when it was in its perfect unbroken state and this is a really beautiful uh, way to view not just you know us as people but also our relationships that those you know those broken parts when healed back together with with gold with scar tissue whatever it may be with um with difficult conversations that then create that repair following the rupture it's a much stronger overall um uh, overall piece of art let's say in all of those circumstances and actually had we not been through those uh, elements of brokenness imperfection and um, and did the work to to bring things back together that um, we might you know not have something as special as um, as inspiring and so I highly recommend that you uh, click on the link that I'll provide that will describe Kintsugi and and also show you some of the, the gorgeous um, art that exists with these gold lines through them. It's just, it's just wonderful. Um, and I mentioned earlier on in the podcast about post-traumatic growth theory. And this has been written about and, and researched a fair bit. And I'm just going to bring up my notes here on this particular theory. Uh, which has been, um, well, the, 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 the term uh, post-traumatic growth has been coined by Richard Tedeschi and Lawrence Calhoun. Calhoun. 
Uh, and they, they use the term post-traumatic growth to capture the phenomenon of positive psychological change that can be experienced as a result of the struggle with highly challenging life circumstances. And the seven areas of growth that have been reported to spring from adversity are a greater appreciation of life, a greater appreciation of the strengthening of close relationships and the strengthening of close relationships, increased compassion and altruism, the identification of new possibilities or a purpose in life, greater awareness and utilisation of personal strengths, enhanced spiritual development and creative growth. And just as I read that there, I know for sure that my difficulties with my different brain have definitely helped me develop that greater appreciation of life, of the strengthening of close relationships, compassion, seeking new possibilities, looking for personal strengths, definitely a sense of spiritual development, absolutely. Uh, to me, spiritual development is all about being more comfortable with who you are in the world so that you can be a better person in that world. Um, and then creativity, you know, since I worked on my imperfections and started to share those as a consequence of a commitment to being genuine, following my counseling training and, and, and beginning to do this work, you know, I realized it was through my imperfections and the confidence of well, sharing those that I could better connect with others. So, you know, and all of that came um, as a consequence of what's happened to me in my life. Um, and I, I feel very powerfully in, in this moment that, you know, going through such experiences uh, uh, like sadness, grief, anger and anxiety, uh, they, you know, rather than trying to inhibit those or self-regulate them, actually by by stepping into those and, and saying, what have you got to teach me? You know, how can I use what's coming up for me here? What is this anxiety telling me? What is this sadness telling me? Well, it's telling me that I'm a fucking fully feeling human being and I've got to love myself and work hard at that. And, you know, by, by shutting down from this, this, um, this so-called uh, experiential avoidance, we shut down our ability to explore and be curious and therefore we can miss out on so many opportunities for, for generating positive experiences and meaning through our lives. And again, I will, um, I will place a link in the podcast notes to uh, a therapy called Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, ACT. And this helps people increase their psychological flexibility. Uh, I refer back to earlier on in the podcast when I said about the yes and, you know, being able to recognize our inherent inconsistency as a human being and develop the psychological toolkit to be able to um, use according to what, what's happening for us in any given moment. And ACT talks about the need to embrace psychological flexibility, to face the world with exploration and openness means that we're better able to react to events in the service of our chosen values. It's really, really important, this, um, 
I mean, I must have known this when I wanted to do the bonus episode, but I'm kind of realizing it in the moment now as I'm talking to you. It's it's wonderful. And I think just to close, you know, I want to bring our attention um, beyond ADHD to all kinds of other um, uh I guess oppressed groups, uh, which which is really um, what what this was for me when I was younger, and I'm glad that this light is being shone on it now to help people understand it more. Um, but you know, we've still got a lot of work to do on other oppressed groups. You know, when we look at race, disability, gender, age, class, sexual preference, you know, all of these things we can view these particular oppressed groups and these different ways of being uh, to, to the, the air quotes norm, whatever the fuck that is. Um, you know, somebody decided that, but, um, you know, th- 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 we are so diverse and, and, and actually that's where the gifts are. Um, there's a, again, I'm, God, I'm going to be sharing links galore in this particular podcast but there's a there's another wonderful book called uh black magic which is written by chad sanders i think let me just bring this up here um black magic sorry this is part of how i am chad sanders see i should trust myself trust myself uh the sub title to this book is what black leaders learned from trauma and triumph and i found this book um so thought-provoking and and particularly useful in the sense that it provides a philosophy that helps people um uh, i'm just quoting here um to mine gold from their own tough experiences and so one of the parts of this book that i remember quite clearly is talking about the various shape-shifting skills that black people have needed to develop in order to survive in a white world and so this this um, ability to kind of read the room um, is something that a lot of black people report to uh, to, to identify with in that they um, have to pick up on the vibe in the room and understand whether or not they're going to be accepted there and whether they not you know whether they need to kind of adopt more of a whiteness in that particular um, room or space and actually that can be quite traumatic because much like you know the struggles that my perfectionism um, created in in me um actually when you put those um those kind of trauma responses into uh into action intentionally in in other parts of your life actually that's a great skill to be able to read a room to be able to see what the room might need you to be and um and so that's just one example of of being able to do that and so i think it's um you know, it's it's a wonderful way for us to view what might otherwise be seen as something negative, something that needs to be covered up. And actually, if we explore it with openness and, uh, you know, a sense of, of um, curiosity about how this particular struggle can be, you know, how you can mine gold in that struggle there's there's a lot to be um there's a lot to be said for it so i i highly recommend that you connect with that book um in order to perhaps understand 
from whatever struggle it is that you might be going through, what it might have to teach you and, and what this struggle is requiring you to develop in terms of psychological flexibility that you can rely on once, you know, once maybe you're not in that place of struggle anymore. And um, once again, you know, a, a, a term that I use in probably most of the podcasts, it's like, how can you turn your shit into fertilizer? You know, how can you use this particular struggle to create goodness in your life and help you see the goodness in you um, because it's there and maybe our struggles are there to help us see what we're really made of um, so yes oh, I feel quite tired after after that being very impassioned by the whole subject uh, not just um, in terms of uh, ADD ADHD um, but also what it can mean for other struggles and, uh, and, and how indeed they can help us become more of who we really are. <laughs> so uh, a couple of other really important links that I think will be helpful for people is a website called attitudemag.com. So that's A-D-D-I-T-U-D-E-M-A-G.com. I'll put that in the links. And then probably one of the most important uh, links that I'm going to share with you is a link to the book Scattered Minds by Dr. Gabor Mate. And he writes very positively about the gifts of those with ADD, ADHD, and helps give some insight into how these particular disorders can develop, which is an area that I've not covered um, but there is a lot of research that says that those from um, negligent or traumatic uh, backgrounds often develop such um, such ways of coping and, and the brain is uh, is very intelligent in terms of, of, of uh, evolving in a way that helps people survive. So uh, I think that that would be an essential read for anybody who's directly experiencing anything to do with ADHD, ADD. And uh, as I say, all of the links will be in the podcast, uh, in the podcast episode page, on the podcast episode page. Um, so, yes, thank you so much for listening today. Um, I was going to cover some feedback, but actually I'm, I'm going to leave it because we're at the 50 minutes um, and I've had some more feedback come in today, which I'd like to gather. So I will cover that off at the end of episode six. Um, as I'd said to you in the first episode, I, I will be going with the flow. Uh, with my um, with my structures and my plans um, just to uh, allow for what needs to be to um, to not be closed off by uh, by my perfectionism if you like um, so just to finish I'm going to do a card for all of you out there um, so I'll just get these wonderful goddess gods and guardians cards and uh, we'll see what guidance the cards have for all of us today, all of us listening at this time. So I'll just fan them out here. So gods, goddesses and guardians, please provide guidance to illuminate the listeners and my path as we listen here today. And we receive your guidance and wisdom with an open heart and mind. Let's see who we have. 
Oh, I love this one. We have Hathor, and the subtitle underneath her name is Soul Family. And what we have here is this beautiful golden image of a kind of medium to dark skinned woman with all of this amazing long hair, very natural, but there's lots of gold there. So I talked about this gold in terms of the putting the pottery back together. Um, and then above her, um, is, so behind her is a landscape. I'm going to say it looks like a sunset. And then above into the sky, uh, it's not unlike the Healing Together podcast image, actually. It's kind of a purpley colour. Um, and it's got all of these people from uh, from a non-physical realm, um, a man and three women, all praying down on, on Hathor and us, it seems. And so, using the guidance, Hathor, soul family, destined reunions, support for your journey is here. And she says, a magical time of reconnecting with your soul family has arrived. When you incarnated in this lifetime, your soul planned to reunite, reunite with its ancient lineage, kindred spirits that you knew in previous lifetimes, both on Earth and in the cosmos. You don't have to know how this will happen. It's written in the stars that you'll be brought together. When you meet members of your soul family, it's an instant and intuitive recognition of mutual understanding and emotional safety. You won't need to analyse why you feel so seen and supported by them. It can be an unspoken knowing that brings relief from a previously solitary soul-guided path. Your soul family will always want you to shine brightly. They won't be threatened by your expansion or successes. On the contrary, some of them will go out of their way to help you achieve your spiritual mission. This may be a time of reinitiation into moon temples where you'll rediscover sacred teachings, engage in magical rituals and connect with lunar cycles. Well, I mean, that's perfect because that's what we're going to cover in the next uh, full episode with Amram. We'll be discovering sacred teachings and engage in magical rituals. Ah. So, additional meanings. You share an important soul connection with a person that's a particular focus in your life right now. So let Hathor guide this relationship. Allow yourself to receive motherly love from a parent, friend or a group who can look after you. And perhaps join a dancing, singing or music class. The invocation is, I'm not alone. My soul family are arriving to lift me up. Wow. That's just perfect. Look, my, my perfectionist ways. I'm tidying the cards up as I talk to you. Your soul family has arrived to lift you up. And I think that that soul family is what's already around you, but also everybody who's listening to this podcast, all of the guests that come on the podcast, and me, we are here to lift you up. We are here to help you shine a light on the dark corners of your heart. We're here to help you get strong and stay open, kind and grateful. Thank you so much for listening today. 
It's been a real pleasure talking about this stuff with you. And as always, if anybody's got any questions, any feedback, send them to me at martinblacklock at gmail.com. Thank you for hearing me. It means the world. And I will see you next time. Lots of love. Bye-bye.